So I'm going to introduce to you what's happening in Acts, but it's a, it's a metaphor. It's like a, a, a literal illustration for what's happening uh, to Peter right now in the, in the church as it's beginning to expand. And so I need you to latch on to the first part of this so that the rest of this becomes uh, more and more clear. And so um, in, uh, in Mark chapter 8, we're going to start there. So the title of today's sermon, by the way, is Holy Bacon. I wanted to put Batman in there, but uh, I didn't feel like that was right. So Holy Bacon, step-by-step, vision for faith, okay? So um, if you'll open, before you get to Acts, to Mark chapter 8, and uh, leave that open. I, I want to walk you through what's happening in Mark chapter 8, and then zero in on a specific, uh, a specific point of this text. So in Mark chapter 8, um, it's, it starts with um, Jesus feeding the 4,000, okay? So he fed the 5,000, but he also fed the 4,000. And what happens, uh, if you're familiar with the miracle at all, is that he, he makes more bread from some bread, and uh, afterwards, there's plenty of bread left over. And so they get to collect this bread in baskets. And then as they're leaving, Jesus is warning the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, okay? And the leaven of the Pharisees, in this case, is their teaching. But what happens is they load into the boat at this point, and it says they, they forgot to bring bread. And so they start to argue in amongst themselves about the fact that they don't have any bread. And they think Jesus' statement about being be, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees is sort of like an, a subtle zinger, right? They're like, oh, he's saying this because we forgot to bring bread, okay? That's not what's happening there. Uh, but so they're, they're sort of arguing and, uh, you know, ab- about the fact that they don't have any bread. And then it, Jesus, in uh, verse 17, says, do you not understand? Do you not see yet what's happening here? Do you not perceive what's going on? And then he asked them, when, I, when we distributed the bread, how much was left over? And, they, and they're like, yeah, we had bread left over after the miracle, okay? And then, um, so, so he's, trying to, he's trying to get them to recognize something that they're not seeing, right? They're, they're missing the proverbial forest for the trees. And so he, he teaches them about the fact that uh, he is something specific for them, but they don't have the ability to recognize that. What is, what is this thing for them in this particular case? Well, he's the bread of life, okay? But that, that's not fully uh, realized yet. So fast forward just a little bit further into uh, Mark 8, and we get to the famous confession of Peter of who Christ is. So because Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And like, some, people, some people say you're Elijah. Some people say, you know, you're a prophet. And so he's like, yeah, but who do you say that I am, right? And then Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. And then right after this great revelation, Jesus says, I'm going to the cross. And, and Peter tries to rebuke Jesus, remember? And then Jesus goes, hey, dummy. Or actually calls him Satan at that point, right? And so here's, I just want you to get the flow of the text. Um, amazing miracle, Jesus showing who he is. Uh, Disciples not really getting it. And then Jesus saying, this is who I am. And then the disciples getting it. And then not getting it again. So it's like, we got it. We don't got it. We got it. No, we don't have it. Okay? So that, that's sort of the flow. And then pinched in between this sequence of events of realizing who Jesus is, or maybe missing the forest for the trees, we have a unique miracle. It's unique because, one, it's only in Mark, and it's the only miracle of its kind. It is the healing of the blind man, and Bethsaida. And so even 
the places where Peter is right now in the book of Acts overlays perfectly to where the disciples are at in this moment and what's happening. So um, let's, I want to get to the, the uh, and actually read the miracle for you. And I think I lost slides, Arnie, if you'll help me out with that. And um, here it is. It says, uh, starting in verse 22 is the beginning of this miracle. It says, they came to Bethsaida and some people brought him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, he laid his hands on him and he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they looked him home saying, do not even enter the village. Okay, so this is the only miracle of its kind because this is the only time where Jesus had to miracle somebody twice. Okay, he, 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 he lays his hand on him. He, he, uh, it says he spit on his eyes. And he, when, the first time he asked him, he, he says, I can see, but they're men like trees. So we get the idea here that his sight is, is blurry. He's not really seeing clearly yet. But then it says he lifted his face. Or really what it says is that he lifted his eyes to see clearly. And then his vision was, and it uses like three different words for sight, and they all mean perfect sight. Okay? So get the progression of this miracle overlaid over the whole nature of, of Mark chapter 8, where they're seeing things, they don't get it, and then they kind of see fuzzy, and then uh, with, with Jesus' help, he, he helps him see who he is, and then there's the declaration, you're the Christ, right? But the fullness of what that meant wasn't totally realized yet, okay? So this miracle is, is a sort of an illustration of what spiritual vision is. It's, 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 it's developing. Now, the, the problem here is not that Jesus didn't eat his Wheaties that, you know, this morning and had, didn't have enough power to, to, to fix the guy the right, at the first time, right? The, the, the deal here is that Jesus is showing the disciples what it will be to walk with him and that staying with him, they will eventually see clearly all that the kingdom is going to be made of. Okay, that's the, the metaphor illustration for this morning. Okay, so keep that in mind as we walk through the text, okay? Um, now, let's turn to Acts chapter 10, and uh, we'll pick up the story right at the end of where we left off, which is in verse 43 from last week. So last week, we had talked about these two miracles that Peter had done. It was the healing of Aeneas, who was this paralyzed man, and the raising of uh, Tabitha, okay? And so uh, we read in verse 43, that he stayed, that he being Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, who's a tanner, okay? So God leads us step by step, okay? He, he doesn't say, this is the whole journey, and I need you to jump to the end. He, it's a progression of what we're doing. And so when we follow God and we follow him by his word, we find ourselves learning new things about God, but they're not novel things. Let me say let me, let me say that more clearly. When you learn something new about God, it's not because God has changed and you've learned something new that God has added to himself. It's something that was always there, but you have not yet recognized, okay? So what's happening here for Peter is the Holy Spirit is leading him along the way, and he's recognizing new things about the nature of the kingdom and who Jesus was. And it's not because Jesus hadn't already told Peter what the kingdom was and who was going to be in it. It's just that he didn't fully recognize it yet. So he's learning new things. And this uh, applies not just to Peter and not just to us individually, but to the church and redemptive history as a whole. God gives the full gospel in Genesis right after the fall, but he doesn't give the whole 
detailed information about the entirety of the gospel. He just says, from the seed of the woman, the serpent's head will be crushed, and the curse will be broken, and humanity will be redeemed. And when he makes the promise to Abraham, he said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, right? And, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so this, this promise, all of the fullness of truth are, is there. And all that God is going to do is there. But the whole story is not really there, is it? Because there's a whole lot more after that that we know about redemptive history. So um, what's happening for Peter in verse 43, and then I'll, I'll jog back just a couple places, is that Peter is being obedient step by step as God allows his vision to be opened to the next thing that he needs to walk to. It makes sense that that's how we navigate through life. But him staying in the house of Simon the Tanner tells us something important about what Peter's doing. A tanner was not a, a profession that a, a good Jew who was a, a law-following Jew would have been associated with. It was an unclean profession because he was dealing with dead animals. And so technically, Simon the Tanner is always unable to worship because he deals with these um, animals. And then by Peter staying with Simon, he's making himself ritually impure. And so we see here Peter staying with Simon the Tanner is not a, a small thing. But let me jog back just to a couple of other things that happened just recently that's sort of been inching Peter along to this very moment, which is, first of all, that he just did a miracle because these two uh, people had run to the town. He was in the next town. And they say, hey, um, we need you to come with us. And he comes, and then he resurrects, um, uh, not resurrects, I, I should say, he resuscitates Tabitha. Um, you would be ritually impure by going and touching a dead body. And importantly, what he does after he says, Tabitha arises, says he extends his hand to Tabitha. He raises her up. So he's, he's doing things that would make him ritually uh, impure or unclean. And then if you look at the end of our text for the morning, it's in verse 23 of chapter 10, it says that he invited them in. That them, in this case, is a group of Gentiles. So we're seeing Peter being kind of inched along here in his faith um, as God reveals the next step to him. And so uh, let's now track with the beginning of chapter 10, starting in verse 1. With all his household, and he gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. So Cornelius here is uh, identified as a, as a devout man. He's, he falls in a category, a technical category, of somebody called a God-fearer. It's used here in verse 2, and then I think in uh, 22. And so the designation here of God-fearer of God um, should not be confused with somebody who was a proselyte. A proselyte would be somebody who was not of Jewish heritage, who was converted and observed all of the Jewish laws. He's not there. What Cornelius believes is that there is one true God, and it's the God of Israel. And in whatever um, amount of enlightenment he has about that, he's doing his best to observe that. And so what it, his way of observing that is not different than what you and I experience with people out there that say they believe in God. God-fearers are all over, but misdirected God-fearers and unenlightened God-fearers think things like, God wants me to be a good person. So if I do more good than bad, then that means I'm doing my best to honor God with the amount of enlightenment that I've had. And that's exactly where Cornelius is in this moment. He's a God-fearer, and he's doing the best that he can. He has a form of religion, but it's unenlightened. It's unguided, okay? And that's where Peter is going to come in. God desires from everyone not an outward external form of religion that shows that you're devoted, but an actual heart that is devoted. 
And he says over and over that his disappointment with the nation of Israel is that they have this external form. They observe the right things. They know the right things. But the, the, the thing that it's supposed to show is void, which is the heart that belongs to God and that follows God. And that's why he's, he's uh, dissatisfied in their observances, uh, there being the Jews, their observances of religion. So Cornelius is not guilty of having a hypocritical kind of religion where that would be something like the Jews are, are practicing or the Pharisees um, are practicing. But he is uh, guilty of having a false religion. And, and, and I don't want to soften that because everybody out there that's doing their best to just follow God without any real enlightenment is uh, worshiping God in their own way. And that's false worship. Okay? And it's not acceptable. And God is not accepting Cornelius' worship. He doesn't say, oh, that's close enough. I see that you're, you, you kind of mean it, and that's okay. He's going to correct it. He's going to give guidance to it. And so um, just, I, w- I want you to see here that um, it goes, it's analogous to what Paul or Saul was doing. Good doctrine um, does not save you. Knowing the right things does not save you. But bad doctrine cannot save you. Okay? If you don't know who God is, and, and, and have it be directed in the right way, then false worship cannot honor God. It will not honor God. Does that make sense? Okay? So Cornelius is, 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 is in this situation. It's sort of precarious, but God's going to resolve this for us. So we find out that he's God-feared. It says uh, in verse 3, about the ninth hour of the day, he, Cornelius, I want you to note that line there. He stared at him, and ter- he's terrified at the presence of this angel. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So he has a vision. An angel appears to him, okay, gives him very specific directions. He doesn't have any idea who Peter is and, uh, He's told that Simon is staying in a specific location. It's not a generality. It's not go and see if you can figure it out. Okay? I just want you to see the specificity of what's happening here. And so as more things are revealed to Cornelius, he then becomes accountable to whether or not he's going to be obedient and do what he's told or not, right? And so the more enlightenment that we have, the more responsibility we have. The more accountable you become, the more that God shows you or tells you. That's why it's dangerous to sit in church your whole life and not respond to the truth. Because you become accountable for what you've heard. As opposed to somebody, let's just use that proverbial in the dark of Africa, who's never heard the name of Jesus. Okay? That person bears a, a less, think about this, accountability than you do who has heard the name of Jesus and the claims of Christ. Okay, so accountability is relative to the amount of enlightenment that you have. And so further revelation requires further obedience. And that's just what Cornelius does. He's given a revelation by an angel of God. He says, do this specific thing, and he does that specific thing. Okay, God doesn't just say, that's close enough. I see that you mean well, because God is not pleased with um, worship that is not in spirit and in truth. Okay, and so um, I don't have time for it this morning. I wanted to rant on worship music. Okay, but I will say this just so that you can hear this idea. Suppose your spouse or significant other said, I wrote you a love song, okay? And they begin to play it and it it begins to describe somebody that's not you, right? It's like this girl has brown eyes or this 
boy has, you know, blonde hair, whatever it is, right? And the features don't match you. But they're like, hey, this is a love song for you, right? And the things that it's describing are not about you. And then it goes on to recount some love story that never occurred between you and that person, right? I was like, we didn't meet, you know, on the farm. We met, you know, at the coffee shop or something. Okay, so inaccurate things about God in worship music is not just like a, oh, it's okay, okay? That is a, that is a, a hill I'll, I'll camp on, but I don't have time to camp on it this morning. But I need you to hear that, that if, if you would be offended by your love, saying untrue things about you in something that's supposed to be devoted to you, how much more the God of the universe if we declare untrue things about him or say false things about our relationship to him, okay? So worship music is not outside the scope of what God wants to be in truth, okay? All right, moving on. Verse nine, the next day, um, as they were on their journey, approaching the city, Peter went up on a housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Okay. Um, let, me, let me finish that out. And the voice came to him a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Okay. This is a divine burrito, right? It's just a sheet full of meat on coming down, and Peter's supposed to rise, kill, and eat, okay? But this isn't about, it's not about meat. It's about meat, but it's not. It's, it's not really about the animals here. So these commands, I want you to see real quick, if you have a red letter Bible, you would see in that vision that when Peter is, is, is commanded, that those are red letters. And he says, yes, Lord, right? And so he's recognizing here the voice of, of Christ. Peter recognized the voice of Christ, which is an important qualification of, of who he is as an apostle. And it makes him qualified to say what he's going to say and do what he's about to do. I won't steal Aaron's thunder, but what he's about to do needs to be commissioned by Christ. If you're going to change the, cons the constitution of the church, that means the actual who it's made up of, it's got to have some authority behind it besides one person or an individual, okay? All right, so with that being said, why is this vision about animals um, and food being applied to um, people? Because that's really what this is about. It's about people. And um, so you need to kind of understand common and uncommon or clean versus unclean. So what is, what is common or unclean? Uh, I have that slide, Arnie. Um, to, to be unclean is, is a spiritual condition regarding worship, Okay before God. You are considered either richly impure, as in you, you should not approach me if you're unclean, or you're richly impure. So it has to do with how God considers you in regard to your worship of him, okay? Now, you need to, you need to understand that this is not the first time that Peter has been told this. He's been given the full truth before, but it, but it wasn't, it didn't, it, he didn't have the full enlightenment yet, okay? So, um, let me help you understand what Peter has already been told so that this uh, particular vision will make more sense. So in Mark chapter 7, just before what we had all 
jog through in Mark 8, and Luke 11, and then Matthew 15, all recount this same interaction with Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, effectively, it went like this. A Pharisee invites Jesus over to his house for dinner, and the disciples don't wash their hands. And this upsets everyone. And uh, it upsets mostly just the Pharisees, right? And so they're, they're like, hey, why do your disciples not wash their hands? They don't observe the traditions, and they're unclean. Because eating with unwashed hands in their category of thinking made somebody unclean. Not like, don't, don't think physically, think spiritually unclean, okay? And so they're horribly offended at this. And Jesus effectively corrects the nature of their thinking first by saying this, Isaiah was right about you, that you worship me in vain. So why does he say that? He, he's saying, Isaiah prophesied about you guys worshiping God in vain. And he says, you worshiping God, God in vain because you teach as doctrine, the traditions of man. He says, what you, what you think is important are the traditions or the teachings of, of uh, the, the religious leaders, but you teach those traditions as though they're more important and to the neglect of God's actual laws. And so he says, um, it's, it's not anything that you eat or anything that you put inside your body that makes you clean or unclean, right? He says, what you eat, what you put in your mouth, he, he just says, it comes out as waste. That's that doesn't make you unclean. He says, what comes out of you is what um, makes you unclean. So he's saying, he's pointing to something else. You can't infect your heart by eating something unclean or with eating with unwashed hands. But what you do and what you say and how you act reveals something that's coming out of you, which is this impure heart, okay? And so when um, we get a little clue into this, being what uh, Jesus was trying to help Peter see, because in the Mark version of this story, it, we get this kind of like parenthetical comment. It says, when Jesus said this, he, may, he declared all foods clean. So even before the new covenant, before this moment with the Gentiles, before any of this, Peter's already been told it's, it, the food doesn't matter, okay? But what, Peter, what Peter's really failing to recognize is that statement is not just about food. It's about what makes something clean or unclean. What causes that condition in somebody and what then necessitates them uh, be, or, or how, how they get clean, I guess, is the, the better way to say that. So um, let's keep moving. Verse 17, uh, it says this. That, now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. Okay. So there's a lot of simultaneity here. So Cornelius has a vision, sends his cohort. While they're traveling to see Peter, Peter has a vision and sees the, the um, sheet coming down. Both commands are given. It says the second part is reiterated. It says it happened three times. It's not because, I, I know I've heard a lot of people say this. It's not because Peter's too thick to get it. I think people are going to um, owe a lot of apologies to Peter in heaven. We make him out to be this doof and, and, and an oaf and everything. And I, it's not that. If, if it's said three times, it's for emphasis. Holy, holy, holy. Okay? So what God is trying to declare in this moment is what I say is clean is what makes it clean. What I say is clean is what makes it clean. Don't call what I say clean unclean. Okay? So that's the emphasis there. So uh, moving on. Um, so uh, while Peter's sort of trying to figure out why he's had this vision other than the fact that he was hungry. Um, he, he's, he's wondering about the interpretation of it. And so because God did not give the, all of the detail to Peter up front, and he didn't give all the detail to Cornelius up front, um, 
but he has told the full truth to both of them. And so this is what we call progressive revelation. It's just, as, as events unfold, you understand more what you are to do and the right way to go about things. And this is the nature of how God operates with, with man. And um, I'll, I'll tell you the principle that underlies that because it makes the nature of a relationship one of faith and not one of how well can you follow the plan, okay? If God, if God gave you the whole plan, said this is how the whole thing's gonna work, now, now do it, make sure you get it right, then it's now all up to us and requires no faith. He's already revealed the whole thing to you. Does that make sense? But since the nature of our relationship to God is based on one of trust and faith, it's Abraham, go to the land, I'll show you, Okay? There's no details given, but he's going to give him a land. He's going to give him a people, but he doesn't know all that yet. And then when he gets finally there and obeys, then he tells him, he gives him the promise of a child, okay? And so there's progressive revelation, but it's based on walking in faith. Does that make sense? Okay? So progressive revelation requires faith from us. And I want you to see there that God does not correct anything. So we, we tend to think there's all the Old Testament laws and the, there was unclean and clean stuff. Oh, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, couple weeks, but um, it's, it's not about, <laughs> sorry, it's not about the, the cleaner on thing things. It's that they were showing a picture of what God is, is wanting us to see. And so God doesn't correct something that he's already said. He's never revealed false information to anyone. If the Holy Spirit is speaking, if God has sent a messenger, there is no, there's no like half and half. It's not like pretty obscure and maybe there's some air mixed in it. And you need to hear this. This is this is wrong. People are saying they have prophecies, modern prophecies, the Holy Spirit told me this or that, and that it's mixed with air. God does not speak uh, with air at all, ever, period. Okay? Now, before you grab your tomatoes, I'm not saying God does not speak or that we always clearly understand what he's saying or that he doesn't use things to lead us. What I'm telling you is that if somebody is saying, thus says the Lord, as though the Holy Spirit revealed it, that's blasphemy because of what I ask you to agree with in principle. You agreed in principle, but in practice, this is where it comes out. When somebody says, God has shown me this or God's telling me this, that's a, that's a precarious position to be in, okay? And so I want you to see here that um, there's, there's requirements given for anybody that, that proposes to speak for God that says this is what we are to do in a collective sense. Here's what God needs from us. Here's, here's what God uh, is warning us of. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, it says if somebody says that they're speaking for the Lord and they either lead you to false gods or they announce a sign or a wonder and that sign or wonder doesn't come to pass exactly as they said it, that person's a false prophet and they're supposed to be stoned and killed, okay? And so um, just, just moving past that, the, the specificity here, is, is unquestionable. It's go here to this place, find this person with this name. It's not hooky spooky generalities with horoscope level, go find your way and everything will be butterflies and unicorns. Like you see that. And so there's a lot of this, I know maybe you don't feel this way, but I need, to, I need you to see that collectively out there, this, is, this runs rampant, okay? Now, I don't know if I have time for this rant. Do I have time for it? Okay. You say, Mitch, but doesn't Joel say that God's going to pour out his spirit and sons and daughters will prophesy and 
dreams and visions. Doesn't he say that? And isn't that what Peter said at Pentecost? Yes and amen. Okay? I'm not telling you the Bible says that those things have ceased. But I'm telling you that because the Bible tells us what those things look like and the standard, they must meet that standard if you're going to say, I've had a dream or a vision. Okay? And here's the standard with this kind of specificity. So, it's, it's not saying that it, it can't happen. It's saying that if it does happen, it has to meet a, the, the old standard and not a new contrived standard that lowers it. Well, we just don't know, you know. We can't really know. I just kind of got a, a feeling about it. Guys, you, you can be led personally by that, but you don't lead other people by that, okay? That's not, that, the dreams and visions not meant for the collective whole. Whenever God uses a dream to communicate to someone ever, without question, with the expectation that they act on that or they're to declare this as God's word for others, God always makes the meaning specific and clear. It is always relevant and necessary. He doesn't give superfluous information as though, like, he doesn't give you stuff you don't need, okay? So, with that being said, God communicates, but he's the same yesterday and today and forever. So that if somebody purports to say, I have a vision from the Lord, we have a standard to hold them to, okay? Now, why is this occurring specifically in this moment, in this time? Because Peter's an apostle, and there's an apostolic age, and everything that the apostles did is cemented into the foundation built on the cornerstone of Christ, okay? It says there, that the, the, the foundation for the church is built on the prophets and the apostles. There's an age where God is speaking directly to and through man, and it's recorded for us in Scripture, so, if, if God speaks to you in the Spirit, tells you something, th- these are the places he cannot speak to. He doesn't change the constituency of the church as though who, who's made it. He doesn't change doctrines about um, specific things about what we believe in terms of what's coming, what has already happened. He doesn't um, lower the bar for sin. He doesn't... Um, let me, let me just get all of them here. He doesn't say anything binding to the collective whole. He doesn't change who is in or out. He doesn't change anything about eschatology. There's no new revelation coming. Why? Because Hebrews 1 tells us, long ago and many times in many ways, God spoke to us by the prophets. In these last days, he spoke in past tense by his son. Okay? And the spirit of Christ is speaking directly here to Peter. That's a privilege you and I don't have. We have the Holy Spirit to help lead us and guide us into all truth. So you don't need new revelation. You need to pay attention to the revelation he's already given. Okay? I'm sorry. That's my rant, and I'm moving on. Okay? So can God, can God do that if he wanted? Give new dreams of it? He could. He could. He has not done that. And we have what we call a closed canon. He's not adding to Scripture. Because if I can say, I had a dream last night, it was from the Holy Spirit, I saw an angel of the Lord, and thus says the Lord, then we should be able to scribble that down right after Revelation. Because it's without air. Guys, that doesn't happen. And you can see the abuse of this afforded now in something like um, the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church says that the, that the Pope is able to have new revelation from God. And because of this, they can say things like, well, we can affirm homosexuality. That's okay. 
I've got it. You know, God's as the Pope, I can declare that. Okay. Now, cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, or Mormons, or anybody that says I have a new revelation from God. That's the problem of not closing that door. So, let me be clear. It does not say anywhere in Scripture. You will not find it saying that dreams and visions will cease. Okay? But there's a collective argument against it. And I think it's a compelling one. Okay? So, with that being said, we don't, we don't say God can't speak. We just say God has, don't, has, doesn't have modern prophets. Okay? We don't say God can't heal. He just doesn't have modern healers. Same thing. All right? So, moving on. So they called Simon. Why do they have to call Simon? Why? Because Simon is an apostle. He's, he, he, has, he holds a special rank. Oh, Galatians 1.8. Let me just throw this last one. He's, the, Paul is warning about the gospel, the sanctity of the gospel. And he says, even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Okay? So there's no other, I don't care what authority they claim. It's settled. Okay? So, uh, so Peter came down to the men, and he said, I am the one you're looking for. That's verse 21. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of, the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house that, you, that we, may, we may hear what you have to say. This is, why, why does it have to be Peter? You need to, think, you need to ask that question. Why did, why did they have to go run and get Peter if everybody was afforded the same level of authority and had the, had the same ability to do things. There, there's a believers that were surrounded um, by surrounding Tabitha, and yet they went and got Peter because Peter has a special position as an apostle. There are no more apostles. There's two requirements for being an apostle, to be directly called by the Lord Jesus and to see him as, as resurrected. Those are the two qualifications, okay? And because, because Jesus appeared to Saul, uh, on, on the road to Damascus, Saul calls himself the last of the apostles in Corinthians 15, 8. He says, last of all, as one untimely born, he, being Christ, appeared also to me. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Okay? But Peter here has an apostolic authority. I want you to see that they had to go get, they had to go get Peter, who's a man, but he's invested with a special office. Okay? And, and Christ has given this to him. On, on your confession, Peter, on, on the, on the um, apostles, we're going to build this church. But notice even the fact that Cornelius has had a vision and it was an angel of the Lord that the angels don't preach the gospel. Angels will not preach the gospel. That's not their job. It's our job. It says the, the mystery of the gospel is something they long to look into. They want to know about it, but it's not their job to declare the gospel. It's our job. We have been given the ministry of reconciliation. And so Peter now is being commissioned to go and extend the gospel in its fullness to, um, to a new nation, to a new people. And so let's resolve this now in verse 23. It says, so he invited them in to be his guest. And this is the moment where the next bit of revelation, it's been given on Cornelius' side, it's been given on Peter's side, and now he invites them in, which would have been uh, not okay, okay? If, you're, if there's lodging laws that you were supposed to put up a foreigner or whatever, if they were within your gates, but you'd send them down the street to the lodge, right? To the place where they could stay. You wouldn't invite them into your house because they're Gentiles. And he's going to entertain them, if you will. And then he's going to go with them. But, okay? Suppose you are 
at home this evening, and uh, you, the doorbell rings. Ding dong. Okay. You open the door, and it's a delivery, and uh, it's, a, it's a box, and you shake it, and it's got a nice little jingle to it, and some rattle, and, and on the top, there's a note, and it says, a picture of us, signed Jesus. Okay? You're super excited. What is this? Okay, you open it up. It's a puzzle. Okay? And you pull out the first piece, and there's a set of eyes. And you say, I know this is. It's not Jesus' eyes. It's my eyes. And you lay that piece down. Boom. And you begin to put this puzzle together. And as you put the puzzle together, you realize that those weren't your eyes. They're somebody else's eyes. And you put that. And then you grab up. And every piece has like a new set of eyes. And none of them are your eyes. Okay? And finally, you've got one piece missing. Right? It's the last piece of the puzzle. And it's somewhere in the background corner. It's like in the dark or whatever. And some obscure little set of eyeballs is back there, whatever. And those are your eyeballs. And you complete the picture. And all the picture is, is just a bunch of people. And you're like, where's Jesus in this picture? And where am I in this picture? And that's the picture of, of Jesus in us when it's completed. That Jesus is with us, completing it when all of his people are together. When, when, when you are gathered, I'm with you. The picture of Jesus in us, in our expectation, is me and Jesus with my arm around Jesus and his arm around me. That's, that's what the Jews assumed. That's what Peter assumed. P Peter's not racist so much as he's unenlightened at this moment. And the full picture of the gospel includes all of the people that God will call unto himself. And you think, my arm's around Jesus and Jesus' arm's around me because I'm a good guy or I'm a good girl. Okay? And that fundamentally misunderstands the reason for your acceptance which is what God is laying down here, Jesus is laying down, what the Holy Spirit is laying down for Peter. The grounds for your acceptance is not Peter because you're a good guy or Peter because you have displayed the correct outward form of religion that I accept. It's because I have called you clean and what I declare is clean is clean. You're accepted because I've said it, not because you've earned it, not because of your outward observance. In Psalm 24, it asks this question, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who, who can come up to God? Who will approach him? Who shall stand in his holy place? There's only one answer. He who has a clean hands and a pure heart and who does not lift his soul up to what is false and who does not swear deceitfully. And you and I don't meet that standard. We... we don't have those things. We do only have them when God has declared them in us, when he's given us those things. Who can ascend the hill of God? Only a holy person, only somebody that's been made clean, who's called clean. Who can stand in God's holy place? The one who God calls clean. Verse five says, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God for his salvation. It's not that you came clean and brought your salvation with you. It's that God's given it to you. Therefore, you can approach the throne of God. Such is the greatness of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. You, you seek his face, not the form of religion that you think will get you in front of him. You, you obey with the enlightenment that he's given you. You respond to the scripture that's already been recorded for you. We are guilty sometimes of not having the full picture and not understanding the full picture. And naivety can be excused, but it doesn't, it doesn't excuse false worship. It doesn't, it doesn't make it okay. 
And we sometimes tend to then roll that into confusion of the reason why we're accepted and why other people then are discluded. When Jesus has this to do with the Pharisees about washing the hands, and he's frustrated with them about teaching the traditions of man over and above the doctrines of God, he says the thing that you're doing is you're declaring something you're declaring something as dedicated to the Lord so that you don't actually have to honor your parents. He said, you, you tell your parents that this thing is Corbin, which means it's, it's dedicated to God. And then when they're in need, you don't give them what they need. But God has commanded you, oh, uh, honor your parents, honor your father and mother. And Jesus is, is angry that they've replaced this tradition of dedicating something as Corbin and replaced what he's actually commanded them to do. And then he says, as a result of that, you become unmarked graves. Okay, so get the picture here. Jesus is saying an unmarked grave would have made somebody unclean. You walk over a grave, and now you've, you've interacted with a, a dead body. You weren't supposed to walk through a graveyard, basically, okay? So here's the idea is this. The problem isn't just that you mess up yourself. He says you mess up other people, and you keep them back, which is us. We, we think our form of religion is the best. It's accepted because we know the right way. And if other people don't get there the same way we think they ought to get there, we not only mess ourselves up, but we withhold them from getting there as well. He says, you make them twice the children of hell that you are. He's speaking to the Pharisees at that point. Guys, religion, especially false religion, kills and damns. What God wants to give us is vision for what's true. And as we obey and walk in those things, he gives us more vision. And as we obey and walk in those things, he gives us more vision. And Paul says, finally, Paul, the guy that served God with everything that he had, says, for now, we see through a glass dimly. But when I see him face to face, then I'll, be, then I'll know as I'm fully known. You won't, you won't get the whole picture until you see your, your, faith, your faith made face to face. But what you do know about it is that to approach God, to be right with him, you have to be clean. And you don't get clean by external forms of religion. You, you get clean by God declaring holy over you. So I, I know I've said a lot today. Hopefully I've said something that makes, makes, <laughs> that's useful to you. It's not about the Bible, but, but is God hopefully maybe shaking you loose? I know that we love our traditions. But is it possible that your tradition is keeping you from seeing what's, what's true? Or you're holding other people back because they're not, in the, in the, they're not living in the form of religion that you appreciate most. This morning, as um, we move to communion, my ask of you is this: that uh, as you as you come up before you come up to get the elements, that you consider what it means to approach God, and that it's it's not anything that you can do or have done or will do that will make you acceptable to him. And that's why when David talks about needing to approach God or having a clean heart, he asks for it. 
He doesn't say, I promise in the future I won't do that again, though he is repentant. He, he asks for it. God, renew in me, create in me a clean heart and renew your spirit in me, which is the only way that you can have those things. So before you stand up to go through the routine of communion this morning, you need to first consider that truth. And if you need to ask God to renew